the news media. It's called the press. And if you add three letters U-R-E, you get pressure. That's what presidents feel dealing with the press. This relationship can be both symbiotic and adversarial. Today we consider P-P-N-P, the presidency, the press, and the people. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Hey, Mr. President, Mr. President, we got record foreclosures. Folks are losing their homes. The banks have gotten money, but they won't make loans. The taxes are bringing small business to their knees, and we owe our soul to the red Chinese. Mr. President, Mr. President, what are you going to do? I am pleased, delighted, oh, just thrilled to have our guest today, who is Harold Holzer. He is the author of the new book, The Presidents Versus the Press, subtitled The Endless Battle. And it does seem to be endless. The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media. From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Now, you probably know him from his other works, too, one of which, of course, was Lincoln and the Power of the Press. He also wrote A Just and Generous Nation. Uh, he's been the recipient of accolades. In 2015, he won the Gilda Learman Prize. Also, he was the National Humanities Medal recipient by George W. Bush. And it was President Bill Clinton who decided, rightfully, to make him the chairman of the Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. Uh, a man of words, a man of great thought, a man of great discipline and research. It is my pleasure, as I've said, to interview and welcome to Watching America, Harold Holzer. Welcome, sir. I'm so um, bedazzled and taken aback by that extraordinary introduction. Very glad to be with you and very grateful for those kind words. Well, they were sincere. I want to ask you, first of all, how did you get interested in history? Uh, there was a time, I presume, you were a little boy, obviously, in school. Did you enjoy history in school or is that something that evolved later? You know, I enjoyed writing. Um, I, I wrote poetry as an obnoxious first grader. Um, but uh, one day in the midst of the Civil War centennial beginnings, so it must be 1960, I think I was in fifth grade, our teacher arrived in class one day with a hat, literally a, a broad-brimmed hat, overflowing with the names of historical figures from the past, mostly dead white men, certainly men. And we all lined up and picked a name from this hat. Our assignment was to proceed to the school library. We were in a middle school, so we had a kind of more advanced library than a grade school, and take a book on that person, use it for, quote, research, unquote, and write a composition, we called it, I guess a little paper. And I chose Lincoln's name from the hat, and I guess it was just, an, you know, an unexpected epiphany. Uh, I went to the library, I, picked, I still remember picking out the book. 60 years ago, um, The Lincoln Nobody Knows by Richard Current. And I forgot the report. I don't have the report, but I just triggered my imagination and my interest. And then I was off to the races with Abraham Lincoln. So you say it was a type of epiphany. Was it an immediate affinity? Yes. How so? That's a lot of syllables, but it was an epiphany and an affinity. I was gripped with the story was about the mythology surrounding Lincoln, his, the assassination, the, his, Lincoln's canonization as a secular saint, but also about his suffering, his, uh, his personal agonies, his stoic leadership, and also his writing. I, mean, I was attracted to Lincoln not only because he personified the American dream, but because he described it in his writings. So it was just, you know, I'm I also very drawn to his face. I started collecting magazine stories and pictorial stories. Uh, in those days, several of the New York newspapers, and I grew up in 
the outer boroughs of New York City, would publish a, a Lincoln painting or photograph on February 12th, his birthday. Mm. I clipped all of them, and, and that was the, that was the start. So on to college, and I studied both English and, and history. Uh, one of the things which I found astonishing in your book, and there are so many things that are astonishing in it, it's surprise after surprise after surprise, and one of which is about Lincoln himself, that evidently uh, he wanted to close down what at the time were considered anti-war journals. Uh, so there was an actual, if you will, uh, strategy to quiet those who might show any disfavor whatsoever to the Union Army. Yes, it was uh, both about uh, the military imperative, but I would hasten to add that it was also about political journalism. The newspapers that the Lincoln administration closed, the editors um, whom they arrested, um, often imprisoned in military facilities without trial, without civil trial or military trial, were Democrats. The newspapers were openly affiliated with the opposition Democratic Party. The editors uh, were propagandists for the Democratic Party. On the other hand, Lincoln was just, you know, very friendly for his entire mature political career with Republican newspaper editors. He hung out in their offices. He got them political patronage when they, uh, when he became president, gave them government printing contracts. That was the game, and Honest Abe played the game. But what he did that was extraordinary, as you point out, is once Democratic newspapers began advising young men not to join the army, not to enlist, and to resist the draft, he thought that was borderline treason or maybe over the border. And so they were, not only did the administration arrest them, but um, newspapers were thrown off railroad cars if they were Democratic papers. In, uh, in New York, the State Department and the Post Office Department colluded, and if this sounds like it was ripped from the headlines, you know, it, everything that's, that's new was old again, I guess. Uh, <laughs> the, the newspapers were banned from the post office if they contained information that would be considered harmful to impressionable young men longing to go to battle for their country. So it was quite an extraordinary time. We do know that historically, not to um, malign contemporary Democrats, but we do know that historically the Democratic Party was aligned with the Ku Klux Klan. Was it because of that kind of content that, that Lincoln went after the Democratic papers? Uh, to be sure, many of the Democratic papers were racist, um, and um, particularly in opposition to the Emancipation Proclamation. But no, it was really about the prosecution of the war. The prosecution of the war led to the prosecution of the, maybe the persecution of the of the journalists. Lincoln, at the beginning of the war, in fact, on July 4th of 1861, said he was assuming what he called the war power. It was not, nothing authorizing it or even describing it in the, in the founding documents. But in times of civil war, the Constitution made clear the writ of habeas corpus could be suspended. It doesn't precisely say who is responsible for doing so. Yes. But Lincoln did it on executive authority. Later, it was ratified kind of meekly by the Congress after he had made extraordinary, unprecedented decisions on his own. And part of that was a crackdown on free speech and free press. And the Constitution says the Congress may not abridge freedom of the press, but it doesn't say anything about the president doing it on his own. So he felt he was on firm ground, and he put it in um, ways that people could understand, because in addition to being uh, a, an authoritarian figure when it came to the opposition press, he was a brilliant, brilliant communicator who wrote in language designed for ordinary people to understand. And when they asked him, or when actually a Democratic convention asked him, you know, how dare you um, condemn people for expressing themselves? Lincoln put it in terms of what happens when a soldier deserts if he's been influenced by, uh, a, you know, a slimy Democrat. He wrote, must I shoot a simple-minded soldier boy who deserts and spare the wily agitator who induces him to desert? Wow, that is very clever. <laughs> yeah, he spelled wily, W-I-L-E-Y. I don't want to make him sound perfect because he was a terrible <laughs> speller. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's a... It's a vivid description. 
Well, that type of thing um, uh, is is not singularly disassociated with uh, with with Lincoln, as you point out in your book. Uh, you know, Lincoln was comfortable with those on his own side, uh, uh, journalists and and publishers and what have you. But so evidently was Andrew Jackson. Um, you make attention of the fact that the term kitchen cabinet referred to newspaper editors and advisors coming to the White House via the pantry to get to speak to the president. How common is this amongst presidents that they would actually have persons advising them in the press? Well, Jackson was the first. That's why it was so it was startling enough for people to coin a new phrase to describe the advisors. Um, Jackson was just grew tired of his cabinet. There were factions in the cabinet. Uh, he, he was an old older president. He was the oldest up to that point, and for many years after, um, there were factions lining up to be his successor. He just got bored with it. They were also snobs. Um, they had it in for the wife of one of the cabinet members who had kind of a scandalous life. So he invited his press pals, newspapers who supported him, and even a few newspaper men whose, whose newspapers were created in Washington specifically to support him. He invited them to become advisors. So men like Isaac Hill and Amos Kendall and Francis Preston Blair, who stayed in Washington as a power broker for 35 years, really through the Civil War period, um, advised, wrote speeches, created political strategy, wrote, the, wrote his veto messages, at the same time got political offices. Amos Kendall became postmaster general. And one of his first thoughts was, why am I sending anti-Jackson newspapers through the mail? I have to think about, about putting a stop to that. So that was Jackson's uh, contribution. Also, these newspapers, which he created, got, and this was true from the time of, uh, of uh, George Washington and John Adams, the support of newspapers not only got their men uh, in positions of power, their owners, their editors, but they got lucrative government printing contracts. The party in power controlled vast numbers of jobs including if the if the president's party was also in control of Congress, the job of transcribing and publishing the records of congressional debates. There was no U.S. government printing office. There was no congressional record, which we almost take for granted today. There mm. were proceedings of the Congress as published by the, the newspaper in charge. Enormously lucrative, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in jobs. No wonder they were loyal. George Washington, what was his relationship with the press and what were the expectations between uh, a body that at least would be called the press and the first president? Well, of course, he comes to office unopposed. He's a, practically a secular saint, uh, the hero of the American Revolution, the consensus leader of all time. Um, and for three years, he has um, the longest press honeymoon in, in American history. But at the end of his first term, his own Secretary of State, think of this, his own Secretary of State did not appear at a convention in his support. He asked an anti-federalist editor to relocate from New York City to the federal capital of Philadelphia and there to start an anti-federalist-aligned newspaper that would devote itself to criticizing George Washington. So for the final year of his first term and all four years of his second, he was subject to shocking political and personal criticism of the type he had never had in his entire career um, from several newspapers that questioned his his honesty, uh, for which he was you know, legend and proud, to the point where in the, one of the drafts of his farewell address, um, and, and most people say that George Washington left the presidency after two terms in order generously to create... Um, the, the all-time precedent that you presidents should not be permanent, that they should leave at maximum after eight years. So he wrote his farewell address to explain his decision. And he wrote this, the gazettes of the United States have teemed with all the invective that disappointment, ignorance, fact, and malicious falsehoods could invent, misrepresenting my politics and affections, wounding my reputation and feelings, and weakening if not entirely destroying the confidence that you had been pleased to repose in me. I think he left because he didn't want to suffer any more press abuse. Uh, 
Alexander Hamilton, by the way, probably wisely deleted that from the final farewell address. We have it only in draft. But I think those are his real sentiments. He was the first president, and he was the first president abused by the press. Wow. We used the term press agent, uh, which presidents have in one form or another. Uh, you know, we used to talk about the illustrated news, certainly in, in Britain. The London Illustrated News was a very famous uh, uh, periodical, without question, newspaper. Uh, and in those days, they were etchings. And then photography comes along. And you are obviously far more clued into this type of thing than I am. But one of the first presidents, I would think, who who was particularly adroit at using photography to his favor would have been Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, when he was in San Antonio, Texas, he goes into a saloon and, and births the idea of the Rough Riders. And you always have these favorable images of him on horseback or at the back of the train campaigning. Uh, was he able to calculate a design of how he wanted to present himself, or was it more haphazard than that? Uh, oh, I, uh, you picked absolutely the perfect person to represent both of the the arcs of journalistic change that you mentioned, pictures and, and um, uh, press agentry. Um, although Lincoln was photographed, often painted, sculpted more than you'd think a homely man would allow. It was Teddy <laughs> who came of age just as instantaneous photography, for example, was coming of age. And he was, of course, kind of a, you know, made for the cameras. He had, you know, he bared his teeth all the time. He mm. wore pants nay glasses. He had a walrus mustache. He had that jaunty posture. Uh, and then he loved spot photography. He got it immediately. Yes. One one day he was about to do his annual Thanksgiving proclamation, a big deal in those days, and pardon uh, a turkey. Uh, this, this still goes on, this ritual. <laughs> and... Um, the, the associate press photographer was delayed, and Roosevelt said, well, I'm not doing it. And he went back to a meeting, and then when the photographer finally sheepishly arrived and announced himself, Roosevelt told a leading diplomat from abroad, well, excuse me, I'm going back, and, and now I, you know, I'm doing my photo. Now, there's more to it, and um, the Illustrated London News was not quite as important as it, as it had been in the Lincoln era when when they caricatured Lincoln quite often. Mm. But Roosevelt, was, uh, T.R. was also made for caricature, by the way. I will add that he was the hero of the cartoonists. They loved him. But he was also, and this is a quote from one of the journalists who covered him, the master press agent of all time. So they concluded in 1905. And the reason was um, this kind of party journalism, partisan journalism that I described as really being prevalent from George Washington through the 1890s, had suddenly subsided. Um, people like Adolf Ox had bought the New York Times and made it into the all the news that's fit to print kind of straight uh, journalism with only editorials expressing opinion. That was something new. And TR realized that the power in journalism had now passed from famous editors like Horace Greeley or Amos Kendall or Henry Raymond of the Times. It had passed to the front line, sensational, occasionally sensational, page one writers. And TR believed that he should be on page one every day of every issue. And he courted these reporters. He, um, and this was at the beginning of my TR chapter, every afternoon at one, um, he was shaved in the Oval Office by his barber. And TR could not do one thing at a time. He was a just a chronic multitasker. He would read and write and think and talk at the same time. Well, why should he just be shaved for 20 minutes? Uh, he would call the reporters in. He had put them in a white, the first White House press room, and he would answer their questions. The answers were off the record unless he was importuned to make them on the record, in which case he often did. But it was a. It was a. The reporters loved the proximity, and they loved the yes. opportunity. Yes. And they also. It became something of a game. Every time the barber brought his straight-edged razor close to Tr's throat, someone would intentionally ask a very provocative question, because Tr would invariably <laughs> jump up, throw his hands up, and they all wanted to see if they could draw blood, literally. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, this is very much akin, I, I, I think, to uh, to actually LBJ, because uh, in, in, you have one president taking care of his bodily needs by shaving, and another one would, uh, we are told, uh, would be <laughs> in the midst of avoiding his body, shall we say, LBJ, with people in the bathroom, with yeah. the press there. Um, I've, been in the, I've been in that bathroom, by the way. Oh, you have? I have. It's... it's um it's in uh, Senator Richard Durbin's office. Uh, he's the minority whip. Yes. Um, the Illinois senator, who's a terrific guy. And yeah, that's like one of the treasured uh, relics. And I must say, you just using it, even closing the door, is an inhibiting experience because you keep, can't help envisioning LBJ enthroned <laughs> talking to his staff and to reporters. But with LBJ, the um, that bearing, uh, you know, exhibitionism and his own press secretary said he was an exhibitionist yes he had look magazine reporters in to do a profile and he said let's go swimming and that meant nude swimming and <laughs> he dragged them down to the white house pool uh which had been built for franklin roosevelt so he could exercise uh, you know rehabilitate and he said come on guys you're not afraid to see me naked are you and they spent they were there for a lunch instead they were swimming naked with him in a in a in a pool they remembered as unnaturally hot because he liked the pools heated and drinking. He ordered bourbon for himself and he said, get these damn Yankees some scotch. <laughs> By the time they left, they were woozy. Yeah. Well, um, he, he had some, you know, eccentricities, uh, you know, in relation to, to the power and the force of water coming down on, on showers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he had the White House uh, pressure, the highest it has ever been. In fact, the White House staff used to worry, the plumbers, that the pipes would burst. He wanted so much power coming from the nozzle. It's uh, just an eccentric uh, element to the to the man's character. Plus, giving out endless pens, he used to ceremoniously give out pens to people. To everybody, but yeah. I, I have a good story about that. That it's not a pen, but as long as you've gone borderline um, porn here, I will tell you that a reporter called Johnson one, uh, called the press office one evening and tried to get a clarification of a statement that LBJ had made. Press secretary came back and said, "President says come upstairs to his bedroom to get the answer." <laughs> the reporter was flattered. He went upstairs and um, was was shouted in, and he discovered LBJ lying on his stomach, completely naked, being massaged. Apparently, he got a massage from his masseur. He got a rub down every night to relax him. And the president said, let me clarify, you know, without batting an eyelash. And the reporter thanked him. He said, wait, wait one minute. LBJ leaps up out of the, uh, off the table, opens his closet bends down right in front of the photographer's face, completely <laughs> darkers, to get what? A photograph of himself, which he then signs elaborately and gives it to him as a gift. <laughs> the reporter fled into the night. <laughs> oh, what a character. It was sort of intimidating. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Talk about multifaceted signals. Um, yeah. You certainly have them right. in, in that situation. Well, we've made a transition from illustrated, uh, sketched uh, newspapers to photography. And then the next innovation is to motion pictures. And even Teddy Roosevelt benefited from that. We've all seen the, the jaunty images of him at the back of trains on whistle stops uh, yeah. across America. But then with the continuation of the appreciation for film was FDR. Now, FDR, as we know, um, certainly had limitations physically. And yet the – I don't want to say they were in – collusion, because that makes it sound nefarious, and I don't mean it that way. But the press in general were very sympathetic to um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's plight physically. So they always shot him already placed behind a desk yeah. or uh, never in a wheelchair and very often standing. And there's images of him standing at the, indeed at the back of trains, but he could make his braces lock in position yeah. so that the general public didn't know. Now, I've heard tell, and you would know the truth that there were millions of Americans who had no idea that he was physically challenged like that. Is that true or is that myth? Well, I went to the, the best source that a boy could have, his mother. My mother, <laughs> my mother who lived almost to be, to be 100, was born in 1916. And, it, you know, late in her days, I said, did you know that Franklin Roosevelt had polio? She said, of course, we all collected for the March of Dimes. And he always talked about polio. And I actually confirmed this when I went back to the press conferences. He would accept checks from the journalists for polio, uh, you know, charities, and he would mm. thank them. Anyway, she said, what we didn't know is that he couldn't walk. We thought he, uh, he was cured. Okay. So they knew he had a, as he had a 
crippling disease. But they also saw him in newsreel standing at the podium of the Democratic National Convention for three conventions in a row, 24, 28, and 32. 24 is when he trained to learn to walk with crutches and holding on to one of his very, you know, big, athletic, great-looking sons. Mm. Um, and, of course, the photographers, I don't know if you'd call it collusion, but they certainly had a gentleman's agreement yes. that they would not photograph Roosevelt in his wheelchair. Or he used to say, boys, no pictures of me in the machine, meaning in the car, because he had to be lifted into the car. Yes. There is one newsreel of him leaving Ebbets Field in Brooklyn and getting back into his car in 1944 when he was in bad shape. And they sort of lose their grip on him and he just falls into the back seat oh kind of helplessly. So, oh so none of that was published. And if a new guy on the block arrived in the photo, photo pool and decided he was going to make a name for himself by breaking this gentleman's agreement, usually the other photographers would you know, give him a shove just as he was focusing or, or knock his camera to the ground. Um, because they seem to be on Roosevelt's side. Um, I work at Roosevelt House at Hunter College in New York City. Yes. And that is the um, the townhouse uh, in on East 65th Street in Manhattan, from which FDR, well, he lived there for 25 years with his wife and his mother. Um, and from that parlor, he gave his first speech before a fireplace. It wasn't counted as a fireside chat. But on another occasion, he was photographed rather gamely holding on to a railing long since gone and making his way down the stairs. Um, the New York Daily News did not run the photo because just the edge of the braces was visible under his shoes, oh. and they suppressed it. Just, and they, that newspaper's owners hated Roosevelt, so it was peculiar. Was he living at the, uh, the, the Manhattan estate or New York estate at the time he was stricken with polio? I, I think he got that supposedly in a lake, didn't he? It's complicated. Most people think um, because of the play and movie Sunrise at Campobello that he was stricken on Campobello Island in Canada. Yes. Uh, which is, in fact, where he was. I guess he the, the symptoms manifested after a day of swimming and putting out a forest fire and swimming in cold water. All of that is just old wives' tales. Uh, the, the best research uh, that we have suggests that he caught it at a Boy Scout camp uh, on Bear in Bear Mountain Lake mm. uh, a couple of weeks before. You know, you know, uh, yes. like every crowd scene that you're afraid of today from COVID. Right. Right. He was right there in the midst of the polio epidemic. He just came down with the symptoms later. But he recovered at Roosevelt House in New York City. I want to bring in Eleanor, if I may, for a second, and sure. for that matter, all first ladies. Um, we know that Nancy Reagan was a guard dog protecting Ronnie, yeah. her Ronnie, um, uh, with the press. Uh, were there other vigilant wives who would run interference for their husbands with the press and subsequently the press resent them? Um, I don't think there was anything like Nancy Reagan. Jackie Kennedy battled with her husband, you know, quietly mm -hmm. about whether their children should be used as props. Yeah, because John John was these famous pictures, I think, from Life magazine or, or Look. Where... Which Pierre Salinger, his press secretary, yes. um, created. But Jackie said no, yes. and he went to JFK and said uh, she doesn't want to do it. And he said, let's wait till she's out of town. And that's how they got those shots, right? which were not published until the week after he was assassinated, by the way. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Eleanor was... Um, she was more interested in influencing her husband. I mean, but there's no, there was no one like Eleanor. She had her, her husband had 998 press conferences in 12 years, two a week. She had almost as many. She was the first first lady to hold her own press conferences. You know, there were only two women at the FDR press conferences, and they were all white until he had been in office for 11 years. So Eleanor had her own press conferences in the White House. Um, she had a radio. She had several radio series, commercial radio series, for which she was paid, and probably most memorably to people who still remember the early '60s, um, Eleanor started a daily newspaper column, a short one, maybe 400 words, called "My Day," and she wrote five days a week for well, 25 years. Uh, I still remember seeing her columns in the New York Post in 1961 and 1962 when I first started reading newspapers. So she had an enormous reach as a, as a, a, pr 
press manipulator of her own, very friendly with the black press, with women's press, and uh, an enormous presence on radio as well, just like her husband. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is, and he has multiple doctorates. He loathes for me to say that, I'm quite sure, but it's deserving to be known. Harold Holzer. Harold Holzer has written books on Abraham Lincoln, has actually uh, chaired uh, a Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, which was uh, uh, placed by Bill Clinton, but he's also the National Humanities Medal recipient, one of them by George W. Bush. And he has also won in 2015 the Lerman Prize, the Atcher Gilder Lerman Prize, uh, amongst many other distinctions. The latest book is absolutely um, receiving favorable reviews beyond expectation by the likes of Ken Burns, filmmaker, the New York Times book review, the Boston Globe, Washington Post, the New York um, uh, Review of Books. Uh, and for good reason. It's a great read, uh, far more multi-tiered than one would ever anticipate, perhaps, for a book of this nature. And it's great. The President versus the Press, the endless battle between the White House and the media from the founding fathers to fake news. One of the things I wanted to talk about, we've talked about presidents. Let's talk about the press specifically. I am of uh, an era where I remember that people who went to journalism school um, wanted to find the truth, tell the truth, and report it as favorably and as creatively as they could. Then somewhere in the 1970s, it changed. Uh, if you started to talk to journalism majors and you said, why do you want to go into journalism? The standard stock reply with some variation was, I want to make a difference. Um, and that did make a difference. Uh, what do you see as the difference between, say, the, the motivation of the press, say, as we've spoken of in, or even going back to the 19th century, but certainly in the 20th century with the likes of working with FDR, um, uh, uh, TR, uh, JFK, LBJ, to where we are in the 21st century? Well, that's a great question. And, and it's... Um as usual, it, it evokes a multiplicity of responses. One thing um, that has to be part of the discussion is this ever-changing role of journalism, either as a watchdog or as a tool of political organizations. And it sounds distasteful, but really the longer tradition in America is partisan journalism that operates as a cog within a political machine. It was ever thus from Washington um, you know, from 1790 until 1890. And then we went to the period of journalists as guardians of the truth, but also new technologies. And let's not leave out new technologies like radio and television and the Internet is offering challenges to that um, tradition of seeking truth. But then something else happened. Not only is there a return to partisan journalism uh, in the 70s ushered in by the proliferation of talk radio, and then ultimately cable news. But there's also um, the the great high, the great rush that I think White House correspondents experienced after Nixon was humbled and then ultimately brought down by journalists, whether it was, and, and for cause, for sure, for, for good cause, whether it was um, fighting him successfully all the way to the Supreme Court on uh, publication of the Pentagon Papers or fighting all the way to the Supreme Court for access to the White House tapes that provided the smoking gun that led to his the impeachment proceedings and ultimately his resignation. Well, everybody wanted to become Woodward and Bernstein. Exactly. Uh, uh, I mean, and, and that became, if you will, the, the predominant ethos uh, and, and the goal. And well, the... who wouldn't want to be portrayed by, you know, get first of all, get 20 great book deals or be portrayed by Dustin Hoffman or Robert, Robert Redford. Redford in the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah sure. absolutely. It was a great lure. And um, I'll just um, tell you a, a little aside. I was talking, uh, interviewing Phil Donahue, and uh, he and his wife, Marla Thomas, have done a series of interviews with people in marriage. And so he was interviewing Bob Woodward, and he noted the fact that Bob Woodward also recorded the, um, the interview session. And I made a quip, you know, maybe he learned something from Richard Milhouse, who knows? Right, right. <laughs> but, um, but you do see that de demarcation after circa 1972? Yes, I do. And uh, looking at what journal, what presidents later said about the press corps, and, you know, Gerald Ford believed that he was forever being watched to see what physical miscues he made, whether it was slicing a golf ball into a teenager's head or tripping on <laughs> his 
um, airplane, even Jimmy Carter said that he doesn't understand the most athletic and graceful president in history. Maybe that was a little bit of an overstatement, but turned out to be the commander in klutz or the klutz in chief. As yeah, I, well, he was, he was a good expect. football athlete. He was, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, Carter um, has left some uh, really angry recollections on his uh, sort of his exit interviews for the Carter Library, in which he says the press culture was poisonous. They were looking only for the simplest stories, the most poisonous stories, the gotcha moment. And um, although he made plenty of mistakes on his own with the press, um, he blamed that culture for bringing him down, really. Um, he had plenty to do with it, I think, in the, the loss to Reagan. But, you know, he... He he was not a great press agent, um, Jimmy Carter. I mean, bless him, he's the oldest living yes, president yes, ever. Yeah. But he is the one, you know, the infamous photograph uh, and story of Carter vacationing, fishing in a lake in Georgia, and being, suddenly he sees a killer rabbit, quote-unquote, swimming toward him, and he picks up his canoe paddle and hits him with it. No one believed the story, so Carter insisted that it be publicized. He And... and Jody Powell, his press secretary, he said after a lemonade, and you can bet it was a spiked lemonade, told a reporter in August of that year when there is no news, and traditionally yeah. White House reporters are searching for any kind of a feature story, President Fights Killer Rabbit. Well, that story went the equivalent of viral, and it just made him seem like a little bit of a jerk. And nothing to do with policy, nothing to do with um, his own courage. I mean, he was a Navy veteran, but it just swamped the media because it was inappropriately pushed by the president himself. Some people can become habitual, uh, and for good reason. We all know the story of the dog that's abused, and even when it gets a kind owner, sometimes will go on still being reactionary. Yeah. So if we have a, a, a press that has been uh, somewhat of an affront and aggressive with the president, will they be able to curtail that with a new president, or do you think it will continue? Well, the culture of press conferences and how and the tone that they take is often dictated by the president. We remember that you know, President Nixon had spent so much of his career attacking the press and blaming the press and criticizing the press and sending his vice president, Spiro Agnew, out on speaking tours to denounce the press in Baroque alliterative language, the nattering nabobs of negativism, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. that the press... Um, you know, danced on his grave, but also created a uh, much more uh, heated forum at press conferences. There's the the great example, or the, the most famous example, is a press conference Nixon held outside of the White House. So there was an audience of sorts in an arena, and when Dan Rather was recognized, anti-Nixon people cheered while Nixon people booed at the mention of his name. And after a long burst of crowd reaction. Nixon said, and it was actually probably his wittiest moment, uh, he said, are you running for something? And there was another burst of cheers and boos, and Dan Rather said, no, sir, are you? I remember. I've and, seen the clip. And, yeah. and, you know, I've spoken to Dan Rather about it and read his memoir about it. He regrets that he did it. He thought he broke the bounds of professionalism, and he just said he was irritated and he was put on the spot. If he had it to do over again, as much as it made him really a celebrity, he would he would not have done it. But today, you know, uh, Donald Trump tells reporters they're nasty women, or that's a, a you know a wise guy question, or he you know yells at the CNN reporters, particularly Jim Acosta or others. So, yeah, uh, will it ever go back to a new normal or the old normal? I don't know. I don't know. I can't see Joe Biden attacking, and I can't see him jousting to that degree with journalists. Do I think journalists will try to probe him to make sure he is compass mentis? I think they will. You have to forgive me because I'm, as you are probably aware, I was born across the water, but I believe <laughs> that Richard Nixon uh, ran for the governor of California in 1962 and it was the famous quip, you won't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. 
Um, and, and that would prove not to be a good uh, a good prophecy at all. It'd be a false prophecy. Um, but was there somewhat, uh, even if, though it's adversarial, besides with Trump, even going back to Nixon, is there some kind of weird symbiotic relationship of aggression between presidents and the press that some part of them you sense on the president's part may actually enjoy it? Oh, I think I think Trump enjoys it. I think it's much better than work. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm people always ask me, isn't this not the worst relationship that any president has ever had with the press? And I say, you know, I could make the case that John Adams was much worse because he signed and enforced a peacetime sedition law that made it a federal crime to ridicule the president. Wow. And then and then happily prosecuted or ordered his attorney general to prosecute journalists and saw them fined and imprisoned. Um, I think that that's, there was no excuse for that, and and yet he did it. And um, Trump's, Trump's bark is much worse than his bite, if you look at this historically. Yes, yes. And, uh, I, and whether that's because he's just, just playing a game or He's because, taunting the press is what he's yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're listening to Watching America. I'm speaking with Harold Holzer. He is the author of the new book, The Presidents Versus the Press, Endless battle, yes, the endless battle between the White House and the media from founding fathers to, well, fake news. Some presidents, uh, Harold, seem to have a, a bit of a panache and ability to work with what I call soft outlets. Even Richard Nixon appeared on laughing, saying sock it to me, which was a popular phrase of the time. Um, but people who have really managed to exploit this, and I think to the full, was probably the first one was Bill Clinton. He appeared on, you know, obviously Phil Donahue, Larry King, but he also was on MTV in which the infamous question was asked, boxers or briefs, which some people thought lowered the status of the presidency. Um, oh, you forgot to say it, it elicited the perfect answer, perfect Bill Clinton answer, uh, both. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I'll feel your pain. Enjoy. Right. So, uh, um, but uh, do you think that we've ever had a president so successfully adroit using media as uh, as Donald Trump? Yeah, I do actually. I mean, I think he is. I think he is successful at using his media to his advantage. But he is, um, you know, engendered untoward attacks. You know, fact checking, reality checking ribbons that run at the bottom of the TV screen pointing out his lies. And so I think he gets as good as he gives on that. But President Kennedy, President Roosevelt, I mean, Roosevelt, what they, what those three have in common, I should do them in chronological order, Roosevelt, Kennedy, and Trump. Um, all three of them, in addition to battling the press or playing with the press at these formal sessions that we're also familiar with, they went around the press by, and communicated directly with the people by using new technologies. And I maintain in the book, it's sort of a subtext to the battle, the endless battle theory, is that um, the most successful communicators among presidents were those who found new technologies. And with FDR, it was the radio, which was a fairly new medium at that time. And he communicated in a soft conversational tone, which was proved enthralling. And as you point out, and not often acknowledged, and I'm really glad you said it at the beginning of our conversation, he was also using film. He was, almost all of his fireside chats were being recorded by Fox Movie Tone News. Mm. It was a double whammy. He was a movie star in addition to being a radio star. And then Kennedy was the first to introduce live press conferences, on-the-record live press. It's hard to believe it wasn't until 1961 that those got underway. And of course, he had movie star looks. He had a great voice. It was brilliantly set in a the, the State Department auditorium, which had raked theater-style seating. And the press didn't like it at the beginning because Kennedy was winning the handless battle, um, dominating, making jokes. And, um, and then they and one journalist said, this is like watching Kennedy make love at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> but pretty soon they became really famous because he kept calling on them and they became superstars in their own right with book deals and lectures. And um, so both of them are creating these new, these new media. And then undeniably, um, with a segue and a nod to Barack Obama for creating the White House website. But Donald Trump, you can criticize him all you want to, and I'll join you, but 
as a uh, master of Twitter, mm. uh, not only with an ability to write provocatively every day, I mean, every, it's endless, but those tweet storms invariably lead the news cycle for half of any normal day. One of the uh, very pleasant and welcoming facets to your book, among, as I say, many different things which are wondrous about it, is that it, it's it's pretty nonpartisan. And so I was surprised when you uh, acknowledged the following. You said uh, regarding to Barack Obama, he placed more obstacles on the free flow of information. Obama prosecuted an unprecedented number of whistleblowers, including Julian Assange, uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, Edward Snowden, three times the number pursued by all of his immediate predecessors combined. What do you make of that? Well, I must say that was the research that surprised me the most, or the, the, the evidence that surprised me the most. The fact that these complaints were uttered not only by journalists who, who um, generally didn't like Barack Obama, they admired him, but they didn't quite like dealing with him or his press office. And 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 the um, records kept by watchdog groups, uh, the the record of his um, administration's going after leaks in questionable ways, using the 1917 Espionage Act that Woodrow Wilson had cited in cracking down on uh, military news during World War One, he wiretapped um, uh, the phones of several reporters, including the phones of their families. In, in just a relentless search for leakers. Now, this is like a thing that many presidents have dealt with, and it's usually not pleasant to to see the to see the sources, to see the results. Ronald Reagan, who we many people think was a passive and you know, unengaged president, was passionate about plugging leaks. The Trump administration is passionate about plugging leaks, but Obama went farther, and I think it's because he was his administration was really organized. Um, and and organized in pursuit of plugging unauthorized information. But I quote um, Floyd Abrams, who I talked to for this book as well, the great First Amendment lawyer, and um, certainly no fan of Donald Trump's, and he wanted me to know, and I quoted him, that this is the worst threat to press freedom ever, although I, I disagree with him a little bit. I respect that he knows more than I do about about this subject. He also said that in all of his experience as a First Amendment lawyer and an observer of the scene, he always finds that the crackdowns are worse than the leaks. And I think it was this way in the Obama administration. So, yeah, I did try to keep it nonpartisan. Um, and I've been already criticized for being too nice to both a Republican and a Democratic president. Well, that probably means you're doing the right thing then, so. <laughs> if you're getting it from both sides. Um, one of the things is razzle-dazzle and distraction. Um, and some presidents, again, uh, demonstrate a, a great finesse for this type of thing. Uh, there's always been doggies, doggies at the White House. And so when things are going bad, you know, you pull out the dog and you let the dog pull you from the helicopter and you put your hand up to your ear if the president making that you can't understand what the press are yelling at you. Yeah, um, we, we know the checkers speak uh, speech with Richard Nixon. We know that uh, uh, FDR had Fowler, who he claimed the, the Republicans are trying to go after his little dog Fowler. Um, uh, but there's other distractions. Marilyn Monroe, happy birthday yeah. you. you. <laughs> um, how, how much of these things, strategy, and how many of them do you think are just um, just naturally, or if you will, emerging without plan? Well, with Reagan, um, it was just a perfect example. He's the president, of course, who cupped his ear to pretend he couldn't hear the questions, which was ingenious because he didn't have many of the answers spontaneously. <laughs> but and he also pointed to you know pantomime pointing to his watch as he went to the helicopter to indicate he hadn't time to pause. I mean, really, Donald Trump should take a lesson from the way he handled those exits and entrances during all of which he looked presidential, commanding, confident, smiling. The smiling is something we miss. People used to smile as president. <laughs> but Reagan's office also created um, endless photo opportunities during which the president, the, the reporters were warned they could not ask questions. The photo session was no longer a stage where you could get in the question you had for the day. He was sticking to his script. This is physical fitness week. I'm going to exercise with a small barbell, and that's the, that's the end of it. 
but he also went, he also introduced weekly radio addresses. And here's an eerie parallel, which I found fascinating. Donald Trump is noted for and often condemned for slipping away from his desk and watching Fox News endlessly and building his uh, responses, maybe his entire policy on Fox News. Um, Ronald Reagan used to slip away to watch C-SPAN, the the um, nonpartisan all-news service that was just being introduced by a satellite to the White House then. And to such a degree um, that um, Newt Gingrich told me for this book that Republican members of Congress used to make one-minute speeches on the floor of the House because they knew that the president might watch them and then conduct a policy initiative based on what they had said in their speeches. Wow. So again, everything yeah. is happening again. Let's go full circle. We started at the outset talking about a young Harold who mm. withdrew a piece of paper that said he was to do a report on President Lincoln. And in the pursuit of that report, you found admiration and delight and thrill at the person of Lincoln himself and the office. In all your years, and you were certainly one of the leading scholars, not only of Lincoln, but of presidents in general, in all your years of, of delving into the nuances and the uh, details of presidents and their administrations, are you favorably viewing the presidency? Are you somewhat jaundicely viewing the presidency? Is it a mixed bag? I've settled on what may sound like a cliche, if so, I apologize. I continue to think that the, uh, the presidency is bigger than and more durable than any of its occupants. I've had the privilege of going to the White House and talking to presidents of both parties. I've always been taken aback favorably by their grace and their humility about being in the people's house. Um, and really, whatever your political feeling, whoever is in office, people should remember that this too shall pass, whether your least favorite president serves for four years or eight years. Um, there is a tomorrow and a new style and a new ethos will come. But the immense power and the responsibility of the, the White House, and, and really the responsibility that the White House press corps has in getting information to the people, um, that survives and hopefully thrives. The book is entitled The Presidents Versus the Press, the endless battle between the White House and the media from the founding fathers to fake news. And the author is Harold Holzer. You know him from his other works specifically related to Abraham Lincoln. Mr. Holzer, Dr. Holzer, Harold, it has been an utter delight to have you in watching America. You have enriched us for the last hour. Thank you so very, very much, Thank sir. Thank you, Alan. And God bless you. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.